two great armies clash on the battlefield of life, the people of God and the sins that would defeat them. God's people do not fight as well as they should. Sometimes they even yield to the enemy. But even as the battle rages, well before the promised victory, the commander of God's army orders a banner to be raised right in the middle of his troops for all to see. The banner reads, no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. And that declaration has a remarkable effect upon the people of God. They do not use that assurance as an excuse to defect to the other side. They rejoice in the certainty of their final triumph and are energized to fight on. These words from Ray Orland's book, Supernatural Living for Natural People, paints a beautiful picture of our passage this morning. Why? Because not only does it show the true state of those who have placed their faith in Christ, but also how they should respond to their sin as a result of it. A response that calls them to freedom, hope, and action. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8 as we look at verses 1 through 11, which is also found in your pew Bible on page 944. Romans 8, 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, or not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Throughout our study in Romans, the Apostle Paul has been building a case for what the Christian life should look like. Why? Because 
for his original audience and even for us. The life of a Christian can be misunderstood at times and even falsely assumed to be something that it isn't. So to set the record straight, Paul tells us that we're all born into sin. We all fall short of the glory of our Creator and are therefore worthy of condemnation and death. By nature, we seek our own glory rather than God's. Are shown what our sin is by God's law, which only perpetuates our sin. Are then given the gift of righteous standing through the sacrifice of His Son on our behalf by the very one we have offended, which we accept only by faith are no longer under the dominion of sin because of His sacrifice and are not only promised eternal life in the future, but also life in this present fallen world because of our union with Christ, which flows out of this grace, love, and mercy of our Redeemer and our God. And what does that mean to us now? Freedom but not like you might expect. Rather than a freedom to be and do what we want, we now have a freedom to be and do what God wants, which we didn't have because of our sin. A freedom that calls us to fight the very sin that once held us captive. And it's this freedom which we now have in Christ that Paul wants us to see. And what does he want us to know about this freedom that calls us to fight? The first thing that he tells us is that the freedom to fight is a gift of God. Look at what he says in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, in my opinion, there are no greater words that have ever been spoken than these. Why? Because in them we see all that we have as Christians, which is life and hope and joy and peace and mercy and grace, just to name a few. Since the beginning of Paul's letters, he has been telling us why we all deserve to be condemned by God and what God has done for us in Christ so that we don't get what we so rightly deserve. And what's so amazing about all this is that every part of the Godhead is involved in making this happen for the sole purpose of bringing glory to the Father, just like they were at the beginning of creation. And guess what? We have absolutely nothing to do with it. Nothing that we can contribute. And that's why this is called the gospel. The good news. It's good news because God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have worked to gain your freedom from the dominion and reign of sin that once held you captive and which sought to put you to death. And each role that the Godhead plays is integral to the gospel, making it our only hope in this life and our only source of strength to fight the enemy of sin that resides inside of all of us. And how does that happen? Three ways. 
First, Paul mentions in verse 1 that we're no longer condemned people because of what God has done for us. Coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus came for the sole purpose of not only dying for our sins, but also living a perfect life before the Father that we were supposed to live, but are not able to because of our sin. Why did he have to do that for us? Well, as we saw last week, because of Adam's sin, which we inherited, the very best that we could possibly do for God falls short of what God requires, which His law continually reminds us of. And in fact, when our sin is shown in the light of God's law, it actually incites something in us that desires to do just the opposite of what God wants, leading us to do the very thing we don't want to do and not do the thing that we would. And what hope do we have at that point, as wretched as we are? Certainly nothing in ourselves. Rather, our only hope is in Christ and all that He's accomplished for us, with the biggest thing being that we no longer stand condemned before our God because of our sin, but there's more. A second way the Godhead works out our salvation is seen in verse 2 where Paul says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And just as we saw last week in Romans seven twenty one, where the word law is used to mean a rule or principle rather than referring to God's law, we see that same word applied here. What's the rule or principle of the spirit of life? Listen to these words from Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This prophecy about what God would do when He sent His Holy Spirit to do the work of regeneration by changing the hearts of people who normally seek their own glory is what Paul has in mind here. And it is the same Spirit Paul mentioned earlier in Romans 5.5 that enables us to even desire God. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Folks, do you hear what Paul's saying? The reason you have faith in Christ is not because you decided to wake up one day and felt like you needed God in your life. If what Paul has been saying so far is true, that's the last thing that you really want. Rather, the reason you have any desire for God at all in your life, and the only reason you would rather seek His glory than your own, is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to change your heart. Because of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you're able to see your sin for what it really is, an offense to God. 
And because of the Spirit, the work that Christ accomplished in both his life and his death has been applied to you, not just in theory, but also in practice by giving you a desire to no longer live life according to the flesh, but rather according to what God wants, which the Spirit now instructs you in. And why was that done for us? That's the third thing that Paul wants us to see, which he tells us in verse 3 in these words. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The very reason that Christ came to earth and died and why the Spirit was given to apply Christ's work to our lives is because of God the Father. He alone is the one who initiated the whole thing. And he alone will assure that it gets accomplished. Just as the New Living Translation tells us, because of the Father, the Son was sent in a body like the body we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. This is what God accomplished for us. A righteousness that the law requires and which must be met in order to avoid condemnation, but which we could never earn ourselves. And since we've done nothing to earn it and can do nothing, it's all a free gift of God. This is the freedom that we now have as a result of what God has done for us. And this is the reason that we fight our sin. That's not all that Paul has to say on this issue. Not only is this freedom to fight a gift from God, but as we'll see in verses 5 through 8, the freedom to fight calls us to remember. Remember what? What we're living for. Folks, every day we're living for something. Whatever that thing is, it's, that's what motivates us and gives us purpose in life. And for many of us, it's our jobs, our school, our kids, or a host of other things that can occupy our minds. But as important as all these things are to us, they can't be the driving force of our lives. Why? Because we were created and redeemed for more than just that. As we've been saying from the very beginning of this series, our main purpose in life is to bring glory to the Father. This is the reason Christ came and the reason we've been given the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul calls us to remember as we fight the sin that daily seeks to entangle us. And what are we called to remember specifically? Look at verse 5 where Paul says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Using the word for, which he does four times in this section, Paul is showing us the reason or the basis for why we need to remember as we fight for our freedom. And the first thing that he points to is who we are now in Christ. Where do we see that? In the words, who live. By using this phrase, which in the Greek literally means to be or exist, Paul is comparing who we once were as people under the dominion of sin and therefore worthy of condemnation to who we are now. And who are we? We're people who have been declared righteous by the Father, who are no longer worthy of condemnation who are united with Christ and free from the dominion of sin, who are called to live primarily for the glory of God, and who are promised eternal life as a result of all that Christ has done for us. This is who we are right now. And this is our main motivation for living and the reason that we fight against the sin in our lives. But more often than not, we struggle to remember that. What do we remember instead? How we let Christ down this week by something that we said or did that hurt someone. How we continue to struggle with that particular sin that seems to be gaining control in our lives and which reminds us constantly how weak we really are in ourselves. Or how we keep finding ourselves doubting God at times. Which makes us question the, crest of, uh, the credibility of our righteousness in Christ and the condemnation that we're supposedly free from. And all of this is part of the battle that we face. And it's for that reason that Paul calls us to remember something more. Not only are we to remember who we are in Christ, but in response to that, Paul also tells us that we're to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, the phrase, set your mind on, simply means to give careful consideration to something that leads to a change in attitude or disposition. To give careful consideration to something that leads to a change in attitude or disposition. And that's key if we're going to have any success in fighting this battle against sin. We aren't talking here about positive thinking, as some might propose to us. If that were the case, then we'd be trying to live this out in our strength based on our success and our merit. But what Paul is proposing is different. He's talking about believing that who you are in Christ is really true, which is what faith is. Then letting that truth impact how you respond to life based on Christ's success and Christ's merit for you. What should this attitude or disposition of a person who has their mind set on the Spirit look like? Well, listen to Paul's words in Galatians 5, 18 through 23, which parallels our passage. But if you're led by the Spirit, 
you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When do we display the works of the flesh in our lives most of the times? When we're not trusting God and all that He's done for us. When we're not resting in the sufficiency of Christ. And when we're not relying on the spirit of promise to do the work in our hearts that He was sent to do. Only when we allow ourselves to believe these things will we be able to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and walk accordingly. For those who call themselves Christians, there is no other option. Why? Because as Paul says in verses 7-8, through for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we know it's true. We remember what our lives were like when we weren't walking with God. I know I do. We remember how we sought our own glory and never gave a second thought to the glory of God. We remember how many of the works of the flesh that Paul listed were evident in our lives and it didn't even bother us. And we remember how the life, death, and resurrection of Christ had little, if any, impact on our lives and on our thinking in the present, let alone in regards to the future. But all that has changed because a loving God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And as a result, He has given us freedom by His Holy Spirit to battle our sin in His strength. And because that's true, Paul not only tells us to remember by looking back, but he also tells us to look forward, knowing that the freedom to fight calls us to hope. Look at what he says in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Why do you think Paul said that? Is he casting doubt on their faith by getting them to question it themselves? Or is he hoping for a different result? I believe from the things that Paul has said about them before that he is hoping for a different result. Why? Because if you go back through what Paul has said about them so far, you would see that he had no doubt in his mind that they had placed their trust in Christ. 
In fact, in Romans 6.22, he affirms that in these words. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So, why does he say what he says in verse 9? Theologian Tom Schreiner's right when he says this, Paul summons his readers to consider whether the Spirit dwells in them, wanting them to draw the same conclusion that he does. And what's that conclusion? That the Spirit does dwell in them. And since he does, not only are they freed from the dominion of sin, stand in the righteousness of Christ, and are no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit, they now have hope. Hope in what? Listen once again to how the New Living Translation puts verses 10 through 11. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Folks, because of what the Father has initiated, the Son has accomplished, and the Holy Spirit is working to fulfill in our lives, which is our sanctification, we have the promise of eternal life. And what does that look like? Here's how the book of Revelation describes it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It sounds like a great place, doesn't it? Believer, that's what we're fighting for. And even though the daily battle with sin is hard and it's painful, the victory is sure. As discouraged as it may get at times, we can't possibly lose because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have given us everything that we need to fight. And we have the assurance that we will not lose this battle. So as people who no longer live according to the flesh, but rather according to the Spirit living inside you, there's only one thing left to do. As Charles Spurgeon puts it so well, sharpen your swords, soldiers of the cross, and be ready for the fight. But as you march to the battle, let it be with your heads bowed down in adoration to him who alone can cover your heads in the day of battle. And when you lift up those heads in front of the foe, let this be your song. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song.
the Lord has become my salvation. For to God and God alone belongs all the glory.